Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about space and literature. Today on the show, I'm joined by the writer Darren Anderson. Darren is someone who, and as I say to him in this conversation, someone who I followed on Twitter for many years because he posted these amazing images of historical and speculative cities, and they were just fun to look at. What I later discovered is that this Twitter activity, the reason he was posting these images is that this was all research for his various writing projects. Darren's writing interests are wide. He's written about architecture, about design, about video games, about science fiction, about film for places like The Atlantic, Vice, and City Lab. And he is the author of the book Imaginary Cities and the forthcoming memoir Inventory. In this episode, Darren and I talk about his early interest in architecture and love of reading. We talk about his writing process and the themes that he returns to often in his work, as well as how he thinks about audience and playing with the forms and structures of his writing. This is one of those great conversations about the craft of writing and the influence of literature. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that features behind-the-scenes content, links and articles about former guests about design and writing and criticism, as well as previews of upcoming episodes. Scratching the Surface is fully supported by these uh, memberships, so if you would like to help with the ongoing production of the podcast, I hope that you consider joining. Thank you for listening and enjoy this conversation with Darren Anderson. long time admittedly knew you basically as the guy that posted images of really cool and interesting architecture and like weird cities and kind of speculative design stuff on Twitter. Uh, and that's kind of what yeah. I knew you as for a long time. And then I don't know, I don't know when exactly it started, but I, I guess you probably linked to something that you had written or something. And so then I read that and kind of went down the rabbit hole and have been following your work ever since trying to read as much of your new work as it comes out as I can, because I, I find your work interesting in that you are not just the guy that posts the cool stuff on Twitter, but you're writing about everything from the Bauhaus to video games, to architecture, to music. And I kind of want to start by, you know, I guess basically asking, how do you think about your work? What do you call yourself when you describe what you do? Um, how how does how did you kind of arrive at all of this stuff that you're doing right now? I'm not really sure. Um, I'm not really sure what I'm really. I yeah, okay. I'm, I'm quite good at pointing at things online. Um, but yeah. I guess a, a, a writer. Uh, I don't even think. I mean, I, I earn my living in, in journalism, but I don't really think of myself as a journalist in the traditional sense. You know, I didn't didn't study journalism. I didn't work at a newspaper or anything like that, but uh, most of my work now tends to, to come about writing in the, the field of, of urbanism, I guess, um, and the sort of intersection of cities with culture, technology, politics, um, you know, psychology, even sociology. Uh, so I guess, yeah, I, I don't like the term, term, uh, urbanist um for some reason i, I have a real sort of uh, allergy to, to phrases like uh urbanist or 
planner or psychogeographer, all these kind of, they just seem so affected. Um, so I guess just a writer uh, who is obsessed with cities. And a lot of the stuff I, I point to on Twitter, that tends to be stuff that I found during my research for, for articles and for books. So there is a sort of method to the madness behind the scenes that maybe people don't see. Um, so it's te- it tends to be stuff that I, I chance upon and can't really use. So I just share it online and, and you know, hopefully people go down these rabbit holes and find something worthwhile or something inspirational for you know, making games or, or uh, whatever it is they're working on creatively. Uh, but yeah, I guess, I guess just a, a writer who has uh, this kind of city's bug. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I guess that, that, that works. I, l- let me, let me ask another question. Let me ask it in a different, a different way. I'm, I'm curious what, I, I want to kind of go into your background a little bit and maybe how you started writing about this stuff or how you even kind of got onto this beat. Were you always interested in architecture, urbanism, cities, you know, all of this stuff that you are writing about, or, or do you come more from a, a, interest in writing and then kind of found yourself writing about these things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of which one of those came first for you? The, the, the city's interest came first, really. I remember mm-hmm. being a teenager the first time I ever left Ireland. So I, I grew up in Derry uh, during the, the troubles there. And it was quite sort of quite a grim place at the time. Uh, you know, the main architecture that we were exposed to was sort of watchtowers and checkpoints and occasionally you know you get a nice mm-hmm. chapel but there, we had there, there was sort of a, an absence of architecture and even I, I wrote a piece recently for for an architecture magazine and I was talking I was actually a piece about Irish architecture and and the theme that I came back to from those days was iconoclasm was actually you know a blowing up architecture that was the the prevailing architecture theme of my youth was, was watching it explode. So, um, and I grew up with a checkpoint at the end of my street and a watchtower that, you know, gazed over all the houses in the housing estate. And there was a sort of, there was a curious epiphany that I had. There was this moment where really I hadn't noticed architecture before. You know, I'd, I'd been so kind of immersed in it that I hadn't actually appreciated it at all. And then what happened was I was about 18 or 19 and I went on holiday to Barcelona and it was this, it was like the world suddenly turned technicolor after being black and white. It was just this, I couldn't believe the stuff I was seeing, you know, sort of Catalan modernists like uh, Gaudi and um, Montaner and people like that. you know, this fantastic Art Nouveau, but, but not, not just that. I mean, that's spectacular in its own right. Um, and it was incredibly, I, I, but little, little things like when I walked around Barcelona at night, all the shops were lit up. They didn't have shutters and you could see everything lit up and illuminated at night. And it was, it almost had this fairy tale kind of quality because where I came from, all the shutters came down. You know, it was basically like the city centre almost had a curfew. It was just so, so strange and militarised and, and depressing. Uh, so going to Barcelona was like suddenly I noticed architecture because it was so different from where I came from. When I went back then to Derry. I could see everything afresh. Um, 
So the first thing I did was immediately apply to do work experience at an architect's office in, in Derry, you know, thinking that I could be the next Gaudi. And uh, <laughs> within like two weeks, that idea had been thoroughly beaten out of me. Yeah. And I was, you know, they were, they were telling me, you know, where do the toilets go in this office block, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I thought I can build all these melting buildings and these fantastical structures. But the, right. the interest in cities and the interest in architecture really took hold at that moment. And for a long time, I couldn't find an outlet for it. So it was a kind of private interest. Uh, I got into the writing sort of journalism scene primarily from a literary point of view. Uh, so writing a lot about the Irish writing scene and, you know, fiction essentially, and editing a lot of like poetry mm -hmm. magazines and that kind of stuff. But there was also a, a, another change that happened, uh, which was in the last, you know, 20 years, and especially in the last decade, there's been such a massive move. You know, they, they reckon it's the greatest migration of people of all time is what's happening in, in places like China, where there's just a massive movement of people from country areas to cities. And I just yeah. find that it was being ignored within literary circles. You know, people were writing these books that were highly acclaimed about, about the, you know, the lives of twenty somethings in London and, or, you know, uh, mm -hmm sort of the, the cliche is always like the English professor who has an affair in Provence on, you know, mm -hmm. they, they, they were just picking these ridiculously antiquated subjects. And I was like, why is nobody writing about this stuff? You know? So, and, and if I see it to this day, I see it as a massive failure in the, in the writing community. Yeah. Yeah. That their, their subject matter is so narrow. And uh, so I, I felt like I had to go, where the interest in developments are happening. And that tends to be, I mean, that's one of the reasons now why everyone I work with is an architect or a designer or a games designer. It's not, it's not writers because I, I feel like they've kind of dropped the, dropped the ball a little bit. So uh, for the past maybe six years, everything I've written has been to do with cities and space. This is interesting to me because I had the sense just based on on reading your work for the last couple of years and you know following you on Twitter and kind of seeing the the people that you the the writers that you write about who have influenced you all come from that kind of literary background and so I had assumed that that the writing actually came first and and that you came from some sort of literature or or kind of writing background uh and so it makes sense that that was there from the beginning but what what's interesting to me is that you kind of and tell me if this is if this isn't exactly a right analysis is that you kind of had this interest in architecture and and cities very early on realized that you maybe weren't cut out to be a designer yourself found yourself as a writer, started writing and editing. And then it was actually later that you realized that that interest or, the, or, or later that you were able to kind of bring that earlier interest in architecture and buildings and connect it to this kind of new world that you're in as a writer. Does that, would, would you kind of say that, that it took a while? That's, that's true to an extent. I mean, I, 
I definitely feel like a frustrated architect deep down. You know, I would love to be designing buildings, and although they would they would most likely be monstrous structures, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, part of me, part of me is definitely. But I think almost everyone is a kind of frustrated something. You know, like I think of yeah, yeah, yeah. You think of major figures, cultural figures. You know, like say someone like Bob Dylan, who's you know regarded Nobel Prize winner, um, regarded as a one of the greats singer-songwriters and you know he's he kind of secretly wants to be a painter or a, or a poet you know right. even though he right. says you know he's a song and dance man yeah there there's always this kind of the grass is always greener on the other side um i think the yeah the connection i guess between the literary and, and the city side of thing side of things is uh the literature i was drawn to initially was kind of modernism of the say the 1920s 30s and mm-hmm. they a lot of those uh writers really did deal with the city you know they really embraced that metropolitan kind of theme mm-hmm. and so many books i have on the shelves that are that are you know berlin or st petersburg or dublin or london uh explored and reconstructed in literature and i feel what happened I guess after the Second World War was that literary writers forgot about that and drifted away from it. And the inheritors of that kind of modernist spirit tended to be uh, genre writers, science fiction, for example, or games developers or architects themselves. You know, there there are many architects Mm -hmm. who are great kind of storytellers in their own right through their buildings. Uh, so I feel like, in a way, the literary writers dropped the baton and uh, others picked it up. And so that that's the angle I've always come at it, is that trying to resurrect something of that right. spirit of, you know, approaching urban space and, and its effect on people. Because it's a massive, it, you know, it affects all of us who live yeah. in cities. And it just seems to be something that's been overlooked. And there are certain writers these days who who do focus in on that, mm-hmm. but they, it's not thematically as huge as it was at the time of modernism. And it, and it really should be because it's a massive presence. Yeah. And you know, what, what's interesting to me is, is kind of exactly what you were just saying about feeling like the stories that were being told about these cities were so narrow. And what, what I've always been drawn to in your work is that you, you tend to cast a wider gaze around all of this. And, you are kind of looking at things uh, from a bigger picture and you're connecting things that don't always at first glance go together. You're kind of going a little bit deeper. You're kind of trying to figure out some new angle on this. A piece I'm thinking of that I read, uh, reread to prepare for this was where you're talking about um, the new Blade Runner movie and the countryside and how we think about the countryside. It's just like such an interesting kind of connection between two things the country and science fiction and and Blade Runner and the city. And I'm, you know, what's interesting to me about you talking about these writers and the way they wrote about the city and what what drew me to your work first was not just your subject matter. And I do want to talk about your subject matter, but first was just the kind of formal qualities of your writing and that you do incorporate. I mean, already you've been talking about your background in this conversation. I feel like your background and your life comes up 
in the pieces that you're writing, you're kind of sometimes writing in a more fragmentary way. You're kind of playing with the form in the writing itself, the way I think of kind of some of these uh, modern literature, uh, literary writers. And I'm, I, I'd like to talk a bit about kind of how you think about the actual craft of writing and what you kind of took from those, uh, those writers that, that you just mentioned from a, a formal perspective also, because I think there's something really interesting there that you're kind of playing with. Yeah, well, there's, I guess the biggest influences on, on what I'm trying to do is, I don't know if they have a name as such as a group. They're a very disparate kind of group, but uh, writers like Borges and Calvino and Umberto Eco. Mm-hmm. So yeah. while they, they weren't necessarily, yeah. you know, with the exception of Invisible Cities, they weren't really urban focused writers. But they had a wonderful right. ability to contextualize and to join very random dots and to kind of look at you know, every reverberation of a theme. Now, I realize that that isn't to everyone's tastes, and I've <laughs> definitely had problems with academics. Uh, academics tend to hate my writing, and I don't, I don't even blame them for it, because if someone is dedicated very rigorously to one, you know, minute theme. Um, they're not going to like someone who has a sprawl and fragmentary approach to things. But, but in a way, uh, I, I try, you know, when I have conversations with these people, I, I try and say, look, I'm not an academic for a start, but, uh, and, and I just don't have the brain to do that. My, my brain is constantly firing in a million directions and making these, uh, you know, associations, endless associations. So it's not a it's not a headspace I recommend to anybody to have. Um, but I do think that what I'm doing is kind of closer to to their work than they might think because what what I'm what I'm dedicated to doing now, I think probably and forever, is just to examine urban space and its impact on, on human beings, and vice versa, from every single angle that I can think of. You know every possible, uh, mm-hmm. you know, direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and those writers that I mentioned, like Calvino and Borges, they did that with sort of literary subjects or, you know, they were, they were it was kind of writing about writing, mm-hmm. um, whereas I'm trying to apply it, I'm trying to apply it city. So everything I, I write about, for them, like, for example, will be some kind of angle on a city. I'm just finishing a piece at the moment about signs. And, uh, you know, it seems like a very boring subject, but it's actually really, really fascinating when you start delving and making these associations and, and doing it across an international scale as well and across the centuries. So I'm, I'm looking at different cultures and, and I'm joining the dots and I'm seeing coincidences and seeing oppositions. Um, so, I, I mean, the book that I have coming out in February uh, is called Inventory, and it's a book about sort of memoir yeah. of childhood growing up in, in Derry, but it's really a book about urban space. And, and I'm looking at that from a child's eye view, but also it's told in a way that's quite like those writers that I mentioned. So it's inspired by a George, George Perrick yeah. uh, quote, and he's one of those kind of experimental writers who, who I tend to chime with. Uh, so it's, to, it's told uh, through objects. Each chapter is a different object and, and the sort of object oh, is yeah. used to tell the story. Uh, so rather than write a misery yeah. memoir, like many Irish people do. <laughs> I've tried to do something different. I've tried to, you know, at least have the structure that's that comes at it from a different angle. 
Um, so yeah, I'm always borrowing from Borges, Calvino are huge influences. I'm always kind of borrowing from them. The Calvino influence is the one that I was kind of thinking about as I was asking that question. I want to, I have another question about the, the form and, and kind of how you think about, uh, kind of, I guess the craft of writing or even, um, you know, kind of taking these subjects that you're interested in and giving them some sort of shape. And it's interesting to me that you say um, that yeah. academics don't like a lot of your writing. And I totally get that. But what I also am curious about, and I don't mean to, um, I, I, I hope I don't say this in a way that's kind of derogatory towards journalism or, or design writing in general, but I think what you're talking about, about making connections that aren't always there um, or kind of looking for new uh, mm -hmm. angles on something or coming back to the same subject from every different angle also kind of goes against so much of the grain of what we think we want from journalism. That's so much about like the hot take or the quick reaction to something. Yeah. And you are definitely not somebody that's working in that space. I feel like your writing is much mm -hmm. slower. It's, it's, uh, there's more to it. I, the pieces of yours that I've read multiple times, I'll pick up things that I didn't pick up the first time. And you're writing for popular websites like The Atlantic, or you know, you've even written for Dezine. Uh, mm -hmm. But you're also publishing books. And I'm wondering, do you? Is it a challenge to pitch these stories or to write in this way for those types of publications? Do you find that the book form is a, is better suited for your interest as a writer? How do you kind of think about where your writing goes or how it will be kind of released into the world? It's it's extremely difficult, but it, it's it's difficult. <laughs> it really is like it's it's a constant hustle and it's a constant battle. I mean, like a daily hustle. Yeah. But I have very sympathetic editors, especially at the Atlantic and, and other kind of culture sites have been very generous, like, you know, Magnum and Freeze, uh, the editors in those places have been great. Yeah. Um, and they're, they sort of enable me to do kind of sideways pieces to the, to the urbanist thing. But um, it's extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult in books as well. Books aren't really a solution either. Uh, I find there is a culture of instant gratification and hot takes. Mm. And I mean, all the hot takes are extremely tepid when you actually look at them. You know, they're, they're, they, they just tend to be the orthodoxy, uh, either expressed in a different way or maybe just flipped on its head, yeah. which I find incredibly boring. And I know before I read any of the hot takes what the hot takes are going to be. It's, utter, it's utterly predictable. It totally goes with the... The, the general right. flow. There's nothing surprising or revelatory, or a lot. A lot of the stuff I like to read um, yeah. has a kind of self. I don't know what the word is, but I guess a sort of um, some level of self awareness and some level of kind of uh, humility. Almost, you know, I, I don't like self aggrandizing pieces. I don't like self aggrandizing political stances. You know. And I see that a lot at the moment. That's really tiresome. Um, trying to cut through right. that when that's the prevalent form at the moment, trying to do something different is an extremely hard sell. And I mean, if I was encouraging younger yeah. journalists, I'm not sure I would. I'd maybe I'd, I'd for for the sake of their for the sake of their happiness, just maybe go with the flow. Don't, don't necessarily <laughs> try and like swim against the tide, but. 
Um, yeah. I have been lucky in terms of finding synthetic publications, but, <laughs> but books are a very hard sell. Do you mean I have written about seven or eight books that have never come out, and every one of them, I think, is this, you know, I don't think that Imaginary Cities was, I'm very critical of my own work, so, mm. uh, but people seem to like Imaginary Cities, and there was actually no reason for any of those other books not to have perhaps uh, received a similar audience, you know. Um, but trying to get it through the machinations of oh, yeah. you know, agents and publishers and book fairs whenever, mm-hmm. whenever it isn't really what, um, I mean, I've been told repeatedly, I wrote a book that was uh, based on a kind of river. I spent like, quite a long time writing it. Um, it was a, a Sebaldian type book about the river that runs through my hometown. And I was told by numerous publishers that, oh, nature writing is over. And I was saying, well, it's not really nature writing. It's about memory. And they were like, no, no, no. You know, that's, that's done and dusted. And um, I wrote two critical histories, huh. one, of, one of nighttime. And uh, I was told again, you know, critical histories are out of fashion. Um, you know, forget about it. So, so trying to get trying to get an audience, it's very frustrating, especially if you know that people will like it. You know, you know that there's an audience there. You can you can almost demonstrate it. You know, if you do a show of hands online, um, and there is always a temptation of just doing a Kickstarter or something. But yeah. I don't have the time. Um, having a kid and stuff you know i don't have the time to really do those kind of adventures but yeah uh yeah it's a it's a constant hard sell and i and i do i do feel that a lot of major publications uh are not right challenging their readers and not actually given they're given the readers kind of i think they patronize them a lot i don't think that they that they things that would sort of delight and surprise them they easily give them the the New Orthodoxies, uh, but I, you know, I caught myself. Uh, the fact that I can make a living, however yeah. precarious, from writing, is something I dreamed about for for twenty years. So you know, when I was working in call centers and warehouses and places, mm-hmm. so I don't. I I appreciate being able to do that, but it is a constant, constant hustle, and part of me does think, you know, if, should I just write articles yeah. about? You know, like, that, I don't know, maybe that way lies madness if I, if I think what, what would sell well, you know. But, but I understand editors too. I mean, I have to be slightly sympathetic because uh, I've approached editors with just some ridiculously harboring ideas. Too. Yeah. You know, like, uh, well, like writing about, I had this idea that I was going to go around all the, uh, oh, I, was sort of contemporary i wanted to write about sort of dark tourism idea and you know the the sort of voyeurism that's involved in people taking selfies at auschwitz and and that kind of thing so i i read the stefan zweig quote and i think it was 1920 where he was complaining about that at on the actual battlefields of the song he was saying that this you know Mm. tourists are coming up um you know by the truckload and and they're not respecting the yeah. The fact that this is a must killing site. Um, and I wanted to go around and to the different places and, and look look at the actual monuments that have been put up because there's fascinating. There's 
such fascinating structures that have been built. There's one that's just a big charnel house full of bones and, and it's got like a lighthouse light at the top. And, you know, they're incredibly eerie and amazing <laughs> places. But in this day and age, pitching something like that, you might as well be pitching, you know, tra- traveling to Mars one way. Do you think about audience at all when you are pitching stories or when you are kind of in the process of writing? Are you thinking about who might be interested in this? Do you have readers in mind or is this it's it's I I guess kind of what I'm asking is, like I said earlier, I feel like so much of your work is so personal. How do you even think about where this lives or or kind of who who else could be interested in this? Do you think about that at all? No, I mean, the one thing in the back of my mind is that I want to write for, I want to write in an accessible way. So I want to reach as many people as possible. I hate the obscure nature of a lot of academic writing and a lot of, even even within architecture writing, yeah. there's a lot of people I admire in, in the business, but some do write in an extremely elitist fashion. Yeah. And it's sort of meant to keep people out. And at my my intention is to try and reach as many people through accessible language um, because I don't think any of these ideas, any of the things we discuss are that difficult, you know, and I think people deliberately, they put all this kind of post-structuralist jargon on the things as a way, as a kind of masquerade and as a way of, uh, and, and I mean, I see people do this a lot when they're talking about power and ironically, yeah. That language in itself is a kind of power structure. It's, you know, it's, it's extremely, you know, exclusive. Uh, so, yeah, I try that. The only consideration I would have is that I try to write as accessible as possible. But I don't think it's healthy to, to think about an audience because it probably isn't, it's probably slightly fictitious. You know, you don't really know who's going to read your stuff. I, I like to think that... Um, there's a kind of, I don't know, I think it might have been Toni Morrison who was saying that she wrote books because they were the books she wanted to read and they didn't, ex- they didn't exist, so, so she had to write them. There's a sense of, I tend to write articles and books because of that. It, it tends to be something I wanted to read. You know, like the piece you mentioned about yeah, 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 Future yeah. of the Countryside. I was just looking online and I couldn't find, I wanted to read that piece. So then I had to go, you know, because of, was absent i had to go and write it and i've been doing that that's pretty much the basis behind every article that i've written it's something that i would have loved to have read and it just doesn't exist i, I want to talk more about that but I have, I have one other um one other question just kind of talking about audience and that this idea of accessibility which I'm glad you brought up because part of the reason i asked that last question is i i was kind of self-consciously feeling like I was making your writing sound really obscure and weird and, <laughs> and completely different than everything else out there, which is, is not what I, I meant to do. Because that's something that I think is really interesting is that you are drawing on all of these kind of literary traditions. You're pulling from people like Zabald and Calvino and writing and experimenting with form, but it's all very accessible. And you're writing for places like The Atlantic and, and um, City Lab for general audiences. And I, I, how do you balance that? I don't know if balance is the right word, but how do you think about kind of, you know, kind of pulling from these you know, kind of traditions, kind of playing with the craft of writing, but also 
making it something that is not jargon laden and and so weird that no one's going to know what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, I, I think it helps that uh, I'm kind of self-taught. So I mm. I went to university for a little while and sort of did the wrong course. So I was studying I was studying law when I should have been studying. Oh wow! Yeah, I should have been studying architecture or art history or something like that. Oh, interesting. So I ended up yeah, yeah. It was kind of there. There was a kind of social pressure because I came from a working class family. I was the first in the family to get to university. There was a huge amount of pressure and expectation. That I was going to be the kind of golden boy, and so I, I think I kind of got railroaded a little mm. bit into doing a very serious subject, you know. And yeah, you know, you should do law, you should become this kind of human rights. You know, growing up in a very politicized environment, there was this yeah. sort of pressure to get into like human rights law and stuff, and it really wasn't my character or my where my interests lay. Uh, so that was a mistake. So really, I dropped out, and uh, everything I've learned has been. You know, after secondary school, everything I've learned has been just through reading uh, in libraries, basically. Uh, so I haven't learned, although <laughs> I've now learned, you know, critical theory and all the isms and I've read into, into them all. And I'm not yeah. very impressed by it. I think there's, I think universities are wonderful places. I think, however, there is a danger in kind of academic mindset uh going too far you know going too deep into these kind of mm. unnecessarily jargonistic and uh obscurantist thinking um when the ideas themselves any ideas in food code that an average person couldn't understand and, and already does understand you know there aren't i haven't been massively impressed by any revelation right. Uh, that I've ever read from any of these great godheads. And I read a lot. I mean, I read Nietzsche a lot, and I read, you know, all the kind of uh, <laughs> philosophers and everything. I'm really obsessed with Wittgenstein, um, who, is, who is probably yeah, the one yeah, exception yeah. where I don't, I, I don't understand. I only understand a fraction of what he's talking about, and even that is kind of my influence. But he's a terrible example. <laughs> But uh, the rest, you know, there isn't much knowledge that I think, yeah. uh, unless you get into kind yeah. of sciences, and then there is a kind of a objective, uh, you know, the, 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 they are kind of objectively difficult, or, or if you're in engineering, you know, there are these things, or, or if you're a doctor or a surgeon or whatever, but in the humanities, I think a lot of it is, uh, is woefully, right. has woefully been obscured. So... My my point of view has always been the kind of amateur autodidact person who's who's kind of taught himself through books, and that was the way my father learned. Uh, so there was a culture of reading, and I think I think Irish are quite good at that. They're very bookish, bookish people, um, and it's it's not the note isn't coming from above; uh, it's coming from the bottom up. So. So any, any kind of accessibility that my writing has for taking these kind of big, strange ideas uh, and, and turning them into something that everyone can have access to, uh, there isn't any thought behind it, really. That's just the way I read, and that's just the way I write. Um, but I do think that 
knowledge should be open. I've done talks before where most, most of my, the talks have been great and almost all of the panels have been fantastic and you meet really, really fascinating people. But one or two of the talks I've done with certain professors who are very well respected in the industry and will remain nameless, you get a, you get a sense that uh, they're talking to each other over your head on stage. And it's not, that's not just my imposter syndrome uh, speaking. So what, what happens is they, they tend to talk to each other and then I'm talking to the crowd. So there's, there's two different things going on and I'm much more interested in what the audience has to say uh, than I am with, um, with a sort of preaching to the converted you know, academics talking to themselves essentially. Because I think, I think there's a lot we can learn you know, from, from each other provided you have that openness and the kind of pluralism uh, that, that does get lost whenever things get very, very specific. Yeah, you know, that's interesting to me. I feel like a, a lot of the origins of this podcast came from that same kind of tension that you're talking about as somebody who was very yeah. interested in uh, graphic design criticism and graphic design theory, but felt like there were basically two uh, two polar opposite camps of people who were thinking and writing about graphic design. They're either the the hot take, quick, let's review the logo uh, of the new company people, and I wasn't interested in that, or there were the kind of academics um, who were really thinking about design at a high level that I found very interesting, but it was very closed off and it wasn't kind of talking to a general audience. And I was wondering if there was yeah. some kind of place between that. And that's the space that I'm really interested in kind of looking at how design is actually kind of affecting the world. And it's not, you know, reserved just for, for the Academy, but it's not just let's talk about the colors of this new logo, but how is this actually kind of like, affecting how we live and i feel like that's so much of also your interest not just in kind of talking to an audience but also the things that you're writing about how th this these designed artifacts are affecting the real world and i was thinking about this idea of imaginary cities and i was thinking about all these kind of speculative and fictional images that you're posting and I'm wondering if you kind of see those, um, you know, these quote unquote imaginary cities or these uh, lost cities or speculative cities or futuristic cities are actually kind of a, a big metaphor for just <laughs> cities in general or life in general and that, that all of these things are imaginary, that something I always say is that design is, is, uh, ideology made artifact and i i'm curious if you have thoughts on that and kind of how how the built environment influences the way we we live and and interact in the world well it has a huge impact and i think the, the imaginary aspect is is right at the heart of architecture you know we it's so it's so obvious a truism that we we forget it but every building originated in someone's imagination and it didn't, it, you know, it didn't have to be yeah. there. It didn't have to look like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the entire built environment was once imaginary. So I have, I have a real fascination with looking at sort of renderings and blueprints and um, ideas that, that didn't come to pass, but could have. Mm -hmm. 
because it reminds us, you know, of the uh, mm-hmm. the fictional origins of actual places. And I mean, even like I mean, it, there's another sense as well, which is that his, uh, cities are very subjective places. You know, they're they're obviously objective places, actual buildings and the streets and names and everything. But you can live somewhere like London, and you can you know there's. 10 million different versions of London with all sorts of resonances and all sorts of places that mean a lot to people where great life events happened and, you know, they grew up here and this place changed and this place got knocked down and it becomes a sort of three-dimensional map of, of their lives. So it's always good to remember that. I think even from a design point of view, it's extremely good to remember that if you're designing a subway, and you have to design for, for kind of everyone, you know, old people, people pushing prams, people in wheelchairs. Um, right. And I think, I guess the, the imaginary component, you know, looking at cities that could have been, there is, there is a sort of element of kitsch to it. And there's an element of just, you know, they're, they're interesting to look at. And, but I do think there's deeper, there's deeper meanings to it in terms of, of questioning you know, everything was basically invented by someone. And I seen a really fascinating quote. There was a fascinating line someone said. I don't know how true this is, but someone said right. it on Twitter right. recently. Right. The corridor was invented in 1646 or something. You know, things that we think are innately natural were actually invented. And we should go and learn about these places. I, there was, um, I think her name was Lahotsky. She... She invented the, uh, she designed the Frankfurt kitchen and it's kind of the kitchen that most kitchens are now based on, but that was kind of invented by someone, you know, before that, kitchens were sort of unhygienic, cluttered places and she, and she rationalized it. And, but a real interest in delving, not just into fantastic things that, that didn't come to pass, but the things that we believe were always there that weren't actually inevitable or natural. So even things like public you know, people had to really, really fight for clean water, for public parks. You know, in Victorian London, these things were, or you think of the sort of plague-ridden cities of the medieval times, these were utopian dreams that were eventually realized, you know, in kind of fragmentary utopian form. Um, you know, even flights, I mean, I'm going tomorrow to uh, stay at the Boy House. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, on a pilgrimage, but the idea of getting on a on a plane for you know millennia that was this insanely fantastical dream that people had, and now it's actually so rudimentary that we barely think of it. You know, and mm-hmm. we feel terribly inconvenienced that we can't get Wi Fi in flights, or we have to sit, you know waiting for a plane for an hour or going through security when we're yeah. actually being propelled in this aluminium tube, you know, four hundred miles an hour, you know however many miles above the earth. So, you know, there is a complacency that kicks in with design where humans think it was always there. And I think I think it's maybe a generational thing. I, I'm of the generation that's probably the last, well, definitely the last um, generation who who knew a, a time before the internet So and, and before mobile phones, right. yeah. and before this kind of, instant gratification technology, you know, that be able to have everything instantly. 
and uh, we were the last, we were definitely a transitional, so I'm in Generation X, so we were a transitional generation who were between those two states. And I think generations that are younger now, they've just grown up with that, you know, to the extent where it seems like it was probably always there. And it's good to remind people, it's good to dig and to show people actually here's how it unfolded. You mentioned this new book that you're working on and and you had mentioned earlier um a little bit about how you kind of write things that you want to see in the world the book that you would want to read or the you know the article or or essay that you would want to read and i want to talk just very briefly and hopefully not in too reductive of a way a little bit about your your writing process because I had read in another interview that you had done that you kind of are just always taking notes. And when you feel like you have enough for a book, you start to kind of whittle it down almost. I was imagining kind of like a a sculptor carving, you know, something out of a block of stone, you just kind of, you know, are then reducing it. And it seems like you always have multiple projects going at once. And I'm kind of curious, hopefully this isn't too reductive. What's that process look like? Are you just kind of constantly... observing things and writing things down how do you start to then form those into articles or books or 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 projects of of various kinds it's it's a horrible process i wouldn't i wouldn't (laughs) recommend it to anyone it's 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 a definite form of neurosis of some kind because it never ends it never stops and it's it's constant i mean yeah i if i go somewhere to escape from it so sometimes i'll just go to a random place that seems like the most boring place in the world. Uh, and it's say that in the countryside. And uh, the, the the association thing, there's a friend of mine who has a house in Donegal in a place called um, Kinnigal Bay. And it's kind of quite remote. You know, we, we walk over the mountain to get to it and it takes almost three hours hiking. And when you get there, there's no phone signal. There's no internet signal. So you're totally... Uh, away from the world, but my, the, the, just this cloud of data that surrounds my brain still, fo- still follows me to these places. So I go to Kinnigal Bay and then, you know, I start reading about, oh, the Spanish Armada, like uh, one of the great galleons of the Spanish Armada sunk there and there was gold. And then I start reading, you know, start thinking about the Spanish Armada. And then there was a, a Fenian, an Irish uh, rebel, he set off dressed up as a priest. He escaped. There was a famine rebellion during the, during the famine against the British, and he he fled the country from this beach. And so the the associations, it doesn't matter where I go, they just they're constantly bouncing off one another. And um, eventually, I've just given in. So that one of the reasons I'm going to the Bauhaus, I, I my next book is kind of wrapped up, and it's come out in February. And I thought I'll take some time out and have a few days away. And, uh, you know, go and lie on a beach somewhere. And uh, I just gave up and just booked <laughs> to stay in the actual house because I just thought, like, I'm going to I'm going to end up writing something. So <laughs> I just just embrace it. Just embrace I love the, that. the neurosis. But um, yeah, I, I write in a weird style. It's very jigsaw like I just constantly collect notes. I mean, that's one of the reasons. Uh, why I have the Twitter is mm-hmm. that's a lot of where they access stuff goes that I, you know, I'll chance in a quote that doesn't fit in text line, so I'll just put it on Twitter, just mm. maybe come back mm-hmm. to it later. It's, there's quite a good uh, way of remembering, actually. Um, so yeah. I'm 
not selfish with it because I use it. If I'm thinking of a theme, I will go through what I've posted for the past few years, and and there's often there's often a lot of material there. But yeah, to sort of jigsaw and then a massive massive amount of notes. So the original draft, this isn't even the notes, the original draft of Imaginary Cities was almost 2,000 pages long. And then, yeah, the, the actual draft. So we had, we had to get that whittle that down. And even the, you know, leaving the entire chapter out. And the original form of it was supposed to kind of be like walking Jeez. through an actual city. And I had to ditch that as well because it was just huge. Like yeah. it was just unpublishable, but it was kind of like, an arcade project thing. It was not even really a book. It was you carried it around in a bag. It was just this massive sprawling yeah. manuscript that was, you know, completely unpublishable. But right. Uh, so I've never been happy with Imagine Cities because I know that there was a better <laughs> book there that never came out. Uh, yeah. So, um, but people are kind about it, and that's that's a nice thing. So. Uh, but the, yeah, it's a, it, it's collect a, a huge amount and then whittle it down, and it is kind of like a sculpting, end up some form at the end, uh, yeah, that, that you don't really recognize as yours, but but it, it looks like a book, so it must be a book. Something that's come up again and again in this conversation is how wide your interests are. I was interested in what's next for you. What are the other subjects that you are thinking about writing about um maybe things that you haven't written about that you want to write about um it sounds like the answer is just everything but uh, are there things that you're kind of especially excited about right now there's everything's going to be about space and i know that's a very vague uh a very vague kind of term but uh i do have a fascination with the spaces in which people live and uh there's a book that's always kind of haunted me uh guest and bachelor book called the poetics of space and really, oh, yeah. yeah, that that was a huge influence in inventory because it's all uh, and Nabokov was as well because they read from a kind of child's eye view of of rooms and attics and wardrobes that you climbed into and and all kind of the mystery of spaces whenever you're small. Um. So, so basically, yeah, inventory is a especially obsessed in a book, and the architecture of tyranny is obviously entirely about space so I'm, I'm on this theme forever now there's no getting away from it and i would just like to kind of look at different yeah uh you know different things with that structure so one of the things i wanted to do and it's been technologically more difficult than i realized uh, i want to do to do a podcast um about themes of architecture and space and the themes initially, one was, uh, the first one was, I, I've got the kind of notes for the the episodes written. So the first is about the idea of home and childhood and where you grow up and the, the impact that that has. And the second, yeah, the second one's about death. And so, you know, execution sites. Oh, interesting. So, well, and burial sites and, and the monuments that we put up in various different religions to, to the dead. And the third was going to be uh, faith. Uh, so looking at all the different religions and, and going to different uh, holy places. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's something I'd really like to do. I'm not sure 
it'll either come out as a podcast yeah. or perhaps as a series of books or even articles. If I find a willing editor, I'd love to do it as a series of, of articles. Um, mm. But just, just looking at thematically at these things <laughs> within a wider kind of architectural perspective, but, but really yeah. looking um, like microscopically kind of examining um, the themes of human life, really, but the places where they happen. I don't think we do that enough. I think the places that we, we inhabit have a massive impact on, on how we live and, and why you, why we believe what we believe. And so I'm, taking, I'm going to take a tape recorder to the Boy House tomorrow and try and record some material inside the buildings and, and you know, try and fit that in. So really, it's all about, you know, I've gone around a lot of cities and the strange spaces that have great acoustics and things. So I would like to try and do something along those lines and um, maybe film, film a few things, but it's always going to be space related and always going to be how, uh, the, how we inhabit spaces with stories yeah. and then how the space itself kind of inhabits us. You know, we carry around the memories of like childhood places and we we carry around these fantasies of what we one day might own or visit and there is something yeah. quite dreamlike about it but something intrinsically every day as well you know um i love going to places like venice venice was a huge kind of presence in imaginary cities and in the background you know via calvino but i love the fact that it's this simultaneously an incredible fantastical place you just can't believe how they you know coming coming in through on a boat mm. through the mist at nighttime to an empty st mark's square and it's all ghostly with these it almost looks victorian the light and it's basically a city in the middle of a living how does it exist but then at the same time if you sit in the canals in the daytime and yeah. sit by the canals and you can just watch people go by, you know, with supplies for the shops and, you know, workmen going places. And it, it's so functional as well as a, as a place, you know, it's simultaneously fantastical and extremely functional. And I love examining these spaces from every possible angle. So, so I'm, I'm basically doomed to residence forever. Yeah. Like some kind of wandering ghost. No, I, I I love that actually. I actually think, that in a weird way, that this brings this whole conversation full circle. We started talking about space and this kind of uh, blending of genre of your writing and playing with form, and or kind of ending talking about that. Also, um, I thought this was such an interesting conversation. I, I, I'm a fan of your work. I, I love the way you think about these things. I, I try to read everything. Um, that you publish and really enjoyed getting to kind of talk to you about how you think about all of this. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Jared. It's been a pleasure. This episode was recorded on August 16th, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.